So I want to I tell you a story real quick. So when I, when I first, um, man, this is almost 15, almost 15 years ago. Um, some of you may be familiar with a house that's been referred to over time as the Tampa House, where I moved into community with some friends. This is uh, way back, and, and, you know, this was right by, like, the, the projects were right up the street, and that, even that same neighborhood, it's not the same neighborhood today, right? And I remember, like, everyone that visited our house, they'd come back in, and they're like, my car's gone. I'm like, oh, I know where it is. It's going to be two blocks up and two blocks over. It's not going to have a radio, um, but we, I could show you where it'll be because it was just regularly, reliably, that's what happened. There was a lot of theft, a lot of poverty, and, and, and a lot of crime you'd associate with poverty, right? People trying to get by. But one night in particular, I remember walking into the house and someone bust out of one of the bedrooms and um, said, hey, someone's breaking into so-and-so's truck. And, and I was like, no one's breaking in. I don't know why I questioned. I was like, no one's breaking in. No, look out the window. So I go, because there's like what was called the half house upstairs. So I, I look out into the alley and I see, I, it was either Will or Ray's truck. Are y'all here? I don't know. It was, one, was it your truck? Yeah. So someone's breaking. <laughs> you remember this. Uh, so someone, someone's breaking into his truck, and, and I'm like, I look out the window, and you just see, like, the bottom half of someone, like, coming out of the, the toolbox in the bed of the truck. Like, they were, like, half a bot. They were totally in it. And I, so we take off running, and I, I think I was in, no, I was in the front, and I, there's a pool table right before we go out the door. We had this, like, you know, like billiards, right? And so there's pool, pool cues on it, and I grab one as I run out the door, which is models, huh? Somebody scream something? Which models the behavior, right? And so the next person grabs the next pool cue, and the next person grabs the next pool cue, and then there was no more pool cues, and the next person says, well, here's the putt-putt club, and, and everybody grabbed something and ran outside, and I come around the corner. I was like, yo, man, and um, I expected this guy to run, and he very, very slowly, like, gets up. He is unconcerned. And he's like, what's up? I was like, what, what are you doing? You remember this? You can hold me to the details of this. He goes, what are, well, I was like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I dropped something. You dropped something in the toolbox of his truck? Yes. Man, get out of the truck. So he starts getting down out of the truck, and he's like, looks at us, and like all of a sudden processes like we all are holding sticks. And he's like, did you bring that out here to hit me? And I was like, no one's going to hit you, man. Just get out of the truck. Leave. And he pulls out a gun and he sticks it in my face. And I can't hold my head still anymore. I just, just Stevie Wonder. I was just, oh my gosh. Woo! Back and forth, right? And so, and so I cannot look directly at this guy. And he says, get on the ground. And something in me was like, no. I, ca I can't. Like, this isn't courage. I just can't. And I'm like, no. <laughs> I can't look at him. I'm not tough. And, and, and to this day, I don't know. Was that real? Was that not real? And I go back and forth. And I kind of think maybe it wasn't. It was kind of a tiny gun. But it didn't matter. I mean, it was in my It was here. And I, and I couldn't look at it. And I was like, oh, man. And so, and so he, he, said, he said again, get on the ground. And then he, he shot it. So now it could have been a blank gun, and it could have been a real gun, 
But it was loud. And he put it back in my face to get on the ground. And I was like, I can't, I, no, I can't. And so he hit me across the face with it. And immediately, like, blood ran out of my, my kind of eyebrow. And I went down. And I, was it you? He put it on someone else. He's like, give me your wallet. And they're, here you go. And, uh, and then someone else, like, went behind the, the car and was, like, standing right there. And he walked around. He's like, give me yours. And then he got on his bike and he rode off. And, and I turned around, I remember one of the guys was like behind the garage, and he had a stick, and he was like watching. <laughs> I was like, that's good, man, thanks. So he rides off, and we walk back inside. Now there's, I'll tell you one more piece. This is unrelated to anything I want to talk about, but I will never forget Ray tweeting at the top of the steps, holding the door open as I walk in, bleeding out of my face, goes, turn the other cheek, Bubba, slaps me in the butt. But listen, I just could not bow. I couldn't do it. Something inside of me just said no. No, I can't. I cannot bow. Now listen, I was not being told to worship or anything like that, but I was being told to obey under the threat of violence, right? And, and this isn't a direct parallel, but as I ran through my own life, I thought this is the closest to this that I know of. Like direct threat of violence and a call to obedience, and, and, and I couldn't. And in our story today, we see three Hebrews under the threat of violence being called to obey and being called to worship. And guys, worshiping and obedience, there's a, there's, they, have so, they overlap so much. They both involve bowing down. So praise, as we learn from the prophets, most explicitly in Isaiah, that praise and worship without obedience is disgusting. So here is the words of God through the prophet Isaiah. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your feasts, your festivals. I hate them with all of my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. You spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. When you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Worship, if nothing else, includes obedience. So Richard Beck, a writer that I love, who, by the way, has a new book out on the theology or the gospel according to Johnny Cash. You should check that out. But anyway, that, that, uh, that author suggested that the right word at the overlap of worship and obedience might be allegiance. And the story of Daniel 3 takes place in Babylon. I know you guys have been fleshing out what that context looks like. But to understand what allegiance to Babylon might look like, we need to spend some time discerning what or maybe who Babylon actually is. Because Babylon is the great symbol of empire. It is the symbolic antithesis to the kingdom of God. So Rome was Babylon. Our own nation is often Babylon. And in every way that a world power leverages violence to perpetuate an ethos of domination, they carry on the legacy of Babylon. They embody Babylon. And as anyone who listens to reggae music knows, Babylon is alive and well. It is still burning people. It is still throwing people into a fire. So Jesus proclaimed love for enemy. But Babylon calls for their extermination. 
And it seems to me that this narrative will be made most accessible to us, most relevant to us, most applicable to us in our day-to-day if we take the time today to really dig into the context of this story. And my hope in doing this is that it will also be helpful to the, to the further reading in Daniel that you're going to do. We need to think through the context of the story and to dig into the foundations of this ancient Mesopotamian kingdom. So I often use this template. I cannot see this, but you can go ahead and throw that first one up. I use this template a lot. Those of you who have heard me teach, sometimes you're familiar with this. But I use it a lot uh, when talking about the concrete needs of the materially poor and helping us. It's a template to help like, dig deeper, but what's underlying those immediate concrete needs. But I keep finding that it's just helpful. It's just helpful in every conversation. It's helpful in knowing what level of analysis we're talking on. It's helpful in communication. It's helpful in thinking in general. And so I'm going to give you a quick aside lesson. I'm going to run through this really quick. The, the point that I'm normally making about uh, the material needs of the poor to lay out the template. So you see needs. People need a sandwich. They need some food. They need some clothes. They need some shoes, right? And, and, and with every need you see, you need to ask, what is underlying that need? There are deeper issues. Issues maybe like a lack of access or a lack of ownership. Now, that's what Well-Built Bikes has emerged out of. We've, we, the Well has worked with a lot of needs, and we're working to address the deeper issue of access and ownership, ownership of a means of transportation. But underlying those issues of access and ownership and other issues, there's in place caste systems, legal systems, school systems, judicial system. There's, there's systems that have been built. And underlying every system, there is ideology, uh, the metaphysics of the thing, right? Did you follow me? Good. Okay, good job. This framework, it helps us know what level we're talking at because often I hear people argue and they're doing this. One's talking ideology and one's talking concrete needs, right? And we miss each other and we fight. We argue, we, 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 we misconstrue what one another mean or what we say. And this is a helpful tool to understand what level we're working at, what level we're analyzing. But it also points us to look beneath what we see, to dig deeper to the unseen realities behind the immediate needs and issues and beyond the, the underlying systems as well. And at the deepest level, we need to find and articulate the ethos, the values the, the metaphysics upon which and out of which a kingdom like Babylon emerges. We need to be able to name the spirit of the thing. And this spirituality that underlies every system, every entity, every church, every family, every corporation, every community is what the New Testament means when it refers to principalities and powers. The archai kai exousia, the principalities and powers. And this is the reason that Paul would remind the church, listen, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against archaicai exousia, and against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. Our beliefs and our metaphysics, our philosophy, our theology, our cosmology, it really matters. What's, what this world is made of deeply affects what you're building what you're giving to, what you're, what you're fleshing out in your behavior. And I believe that there is an abundance. It, I'm sorry, as an example, if I believe that there is abundance in the world, 
If I believe that there's enough for everyone, for example, that would make my behavior probably differ than it might if I believed that there was scarcity. If I believed that when you win, there's less for me. And then I believe that it's a zero sum. Our behavior will be different based on that belief. If I believe that the end is near and the physical world is going to burn up in an impending apocalypse, that might make me act differently toward creation, toward the earth, than I might if I believed that the kingdom was coming to earth. Our cosmology and our beliefs about the cosmos and about the world and our theology, they deeply affect our day-to-day behavior and what we give ourselves to and what kind of world we are giving ourselves to build. And that's always been the case, and it was the case in Babylon as well. In ancient Mesopotamia, like much of the ancient world, there's tribes, and those tribes have gods, right? And these tribes would war against one another. And when there's tribal conflict, there is war in the heavens, right? These mirror one another, so the gods would war, the gods would fight, and so would the tribes, and you can see this reality in the Bible, right? So I want to I make that clear because I think it's often missed. So in Torah, more precisely in Deuteronomy 32.8, we find this strange verse about the creation of the nations, people groups. When the Most High, Elion, when Elion apportioned the nations, he divided mankind up, humankind up. He fixed the boundaries of people according to the number of the gods. So the Most High, Elion, divvies up the nations according to how many gods there are, the numerous gods. Seems like a strange verse to find in a text, in the, in the core text, in the law of monotheistic Hebrew Israelites. And in the very next verse, we see the yod Hey, bab Hey, the uh, Tetragrammaton, that is what we pronounce Yahweh, Jehovah, translated Lord, when you see all caps, the Lord, this is, this is that. It's the very next line where the Lord is more like Jacob is allotted to Yahweh. And he's the patriarch of the Israelites. And so as you read through Torah, you find that it isn't about one and only one God. There are many gods. But for Israel, as commanded, as the commandment goes in Exodus 20, I am, I, Yahweh, am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. So in religious studies, this is called henotheism. Uh, So we think monotheistic, polytheistic. But henotheism is there are many gods, but there is one God who is Lord of Lords, let's say. The the primary one that the faithful would worship and call upon. So in early Mesopotamia, um, you can go to the next one if... Is that the next one? Go back. Go back. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Stay there. Go to the map. It's hard not seeing that. Okay, so anyway. um, In early Mesopotamia, which is where the Tigris and Euphrates come together, it's known as the Fertile Crescent. It's sometimes called the Cradle of Civilization. It's where mankind began farming and domesticating crops. It's said to be the location of the Garden of Eden. And it is where Babylon emerges as the dominant civilization. And the main god of the Babylonians excuse me, was known as Marduk. And as we will see, violence and power are at the foundation 
of the Babylonian cosmology. There's a handful of documents, remaining documents from that time that illuminate this ancient empire. And if you wanted to go through the, the reading list, the top of it would be the, the, the law, which is the, the code of Hammurabi. And then the next one is a poem that contains a religious story, a myth of the origins of the gods and the origins of the cosmos. It's called the Enuma Elish. And that poem, that religious text, is written on seven tablets and regularly used in the Babylonian New Year ritual where they reenact the story within it to hold chaos at bay. And in this, in, in this story, it, it shows how Marduk came to be the chief god, and it clearly communicates that the purpose of the creation of mankind is to be slaves of the gods, servants of the gods, like to farm, to produce food for them. To... And so here's the broad brushstrokes of the story. You can go to the next one. In the beginning, there was just water. And there was fresh water, and that was the god Apsu. And Apsu was in love with a goddess, Tiamat, which was salt water. Fresh water, salt water, marry one another. These are gods, right? And, and they give birth to many gods, baby gods, lots of little baby gods. And like babies, like children, those of you that are parents know, like at young people act out. They cause commotion. They make noise, and, and, and it drives Apsu crazy. He grows tired of them, and he goes to his wife, and he's like, I want to kill them. Any of you can relate? I want to kill them. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. And like any mother might, she basically says, over my dead body. But he's like, I'm going to do it anyway. And so he sets out to kill him anyway. And then one of the younger gods, Ea, realizes what's happening. And rather than sitting around waiting to be prey, he goes on the offense. And he kills Apsu. Apsu's wife hears about this. So she's often portrayed as the, the dragon. Uh, that is her off to the side. I think it's clear which one it is. Enraged and pledges revenge. And so Ea and the rest of the younger gods are terrified. And rightfully so. She, this goddess is the embodiment of chaos and wrath. And these younger gods, they turn to one of them, named Marduk, who I guess is the tough guy. And they're like, please do something. Please do something. And he's like, cool, I could, I could try. But I tell you what, if this goes well, if I'm successful saving us, that, that crown that Ea just took from Apsu, that's mine. And all of you promise your loyalty and submission to me. And, and he extorts promises from them. And what, what choice do they have? They're like, yeah, don't no, totally, whatever, because otherwise we're dead. And so he sets out to capture Tiamat, and he, 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 he gets her in a big net, and he drives a wind down her throat, and he shoots an arrow. It splits her stomach open, and it pierces her heart. And he takes a club, and he bashes her skull in with it. And it says he scatters her blood in out-of-the-way places. And then he lays out her corpse, and out of it he creates the cosmos, the world that we live in, that we inhabit, is created. So for the, for the Babylonian, the beginning of the cosmos, the cosmogony, the origin story, is an act of violence. Creation is an act of violence. Tiamat, the mother of all, 
is murdered and dismembered, and we live in a world that was fashioned from her cadaver. Evil and violence for the Babylonian are ontologically primary. It means they come first in existence. Uh, The origin of evil precedes the origin of anything. Chaos is symbolized by Tiamat and, and is prior to order, which is represented by Marduk, the god of the Babylonians. Evil is before good. Evil is in the eradicable element of reality, of ultimate reality. And so hopefully you know your Bible well enough to know how diametrically opposed to that narrative this narrative is. A good God makes a good world, and the fall comes later. Good is ontologically prior to evil. Evil and violence enter the world as sin, as curse, and they play no role in the actual creation of the cosmos made to be good. And so then Christians and Jews have another issue. We, we, we have to wrestle with what's called theodicy, like God is good and powerful, and yet there's pain and suffering and evil and violence. But for the Babylonian, there's no such thing as the problem of evil. Evil and violence and domination is just what the world is made of. It's just what there is. And so after Marduk kills Tiamat, there's a few of the gods that had been on the side of her. He imprisons them. And then he and Ea take one of them and murder him. And, they, and then they, out, they drain his blood. And from the blood of this murdered god, they create mankind to serve the needs of the gods. We are created from bloodshed. Uh, uh, violence is, is what we're made of, right? And we're to till the soil, produce food for the gods who are represented then by the kings and the priestly caste. We're to build the sacred city of Babylon and we're to fight and die in wars that the king commands. And for the Babylonians, existence is combat with a theology of war. And this is a combat mythology, an ideology of zealous nationalism, and at its core is the myth of redemptive violence. And the distinctive feature of that story, that myth, is that victory over order is won by means of violence. And this is the original religion of the status quo. It's the earliest articulation of might makes right. And any form of order, so to the Babylonian, any order is preferable to chaos. And if you're orderly and tempted to think that's true, remember the very organized and orderly machine that was Nazi Germany. Any order is not preferable. Because peace for the Babylonian is made through conflict, through war. The world is not perfect, and it is not perfectible. It is in a constant state of perpetual conflict, and the spoils go to the strong. And many have tried to take a story like this and reduce it to like a nice um, analogy of what happened to explain the rise of a king. And, And that's not a hard argument to make because it corresponds with how Babylon came into power, with overcoming the other gods, the other tribes. But these aren't just stories or a fictional mask or a mythologization of history. These gods are the actual spirituality of the peoples of the nations involved. The Enuma Elish actually says 
Babylon is a likeness on earth of what he, Marduk, has wrought in heaven. This is, just as we pray, on earth as it is in heaven. Marduk becomes the chief god and Babylon ascends to the power in the entire region. Now, I think it's important for us to take a step back and reflect, like for yourself, in your own how that spirituality pervades our community, how that spirituality pervades our world, how it is part of our own thinking and our own theology. Violence is often the ethos of our time. War and hatred and resentment. And the myth of redemptive violence, by the way, we reenact this all the time. We watch a show. We identify with the good guy. We demonize the monstrous bad guy. We project all of our worst, most shameful acts and, and, and on that scapegoat villain. And then we root for, the, for their destruction through violence. And this is no different with the cartoons we were raised on or the cartoons your kids are watching. It is the story we tell. And then we feel a victorious catharsis as the villain is vanquished, punished, destroyed. And it's a guilt-free aggression. Righteous even. Because evil must be annihilated. And when the good guy finally wins, which the good guy always wins, we're filled with a sense of goodness. And we press on in our own personal repression of what is dark and hideous in our own tendencies. Violence is successful as a mythology because it doesn't seem like a myth at all. It's just the way it is. It's the way things work. Violators are deterred, aggressors are deterred by violence, by the stick. It is embraced and embodied by people on the left and the right politically. It is the Cold War. It is mutually assured destruction as the way we find peace. And the myth of redemptive violence is, I would argue, the true religion of America more than Christianity has ever been. It undergirds our culture, and beyond America, the West, the world, but it undergirds our culture, our civic religion, our nationalism, our foreign policy. It, it lies like an ancient serpent at the very roots of every empire's systems of domination. And if you honestly ask yourself, about the way you think, the truth is it's hard to think any other way. It's almost impossible to resist the tendency toward violence as a last, if not first, resort in conflict. It's at the heart of why we don't know how to have political dialogue. We don't know how to have interfaith dialogue. And it's also why it's so difficult for us to be Christians that follow one who does not speak on his own behalf and lays his life down for the sake of love. Because we still very much want to kill our enemies. And it, we're almost incapable of hearing Jesus say, love them. Do good to them. And if we're honest, if we look at our actual life, our actual behavior, and we allow our behavior to proclaim our belief, we are more Babylonian than Christian. And Jesus is more liar and lunatic than Lord. I don't have time to say it again. <laughs> Why was I carrying the pool stick? Because I am filled with violence. 
And when I'm explicitly asked, hey, why did you and these men run out of this Christian intentional community with pool cues to threaten violence? The contrast was unbearable. The, the conflict was obvious. And I was like, oh, we're not going to hit you, just bounce. But I wanted the threat of violence, the implication of violence, because it's what works. It's what's functional, right? It's what we believe in most. And why did I refuse to bow? Because I've thought a lot about this, and I don't think it was to display something true or beautiful or good. I think it was something about power dynamics. And, and listen, it's everywhere you look. Look, for years, I would, I would go faithfully and show up at, 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 at protests for all kinds of really righteous causes that I really believe in. To oppose an abuse of power, to cry out for something like justice or mercy. And I thought of protest like prayer. It is a crying out for justice. And then one day I was at a protest, something happened to me. Something that, like the Bible writers say, it's like scales fell from my eyes. In an instant, I saw the whole thing differently. And it was as if I, 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 I caught a glimpse that the same spirit that I was there to oppose possessed the crowd that I was standing with. Bitterness and hatred and violence and scorn and resentment. These were the personalities that were speaking. These are the ones that the people who were there for very good reasons. And it makes perfect sense why that would happen. Because think about it. It's actually, it's almost impossible for anything else. It's a heroic feat to resist this kind of posture because the logic of violence has been the air we breathe for as long as we remember. Not just your life, but back to Babylon. So one of the hero, heroes of the faith and fight for civil and economic rights in our country, who I love, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and I think most would agree this is a heroic figure, and I, I would encourage, I, I don't think people are familiar enough with his theological work just how massively intelligent and powerful this brother was. But King's commitment to nonviolent resistance was an end in itself. It was the way forward, and he knew it. And unfortunately, with his assassination, much of the power and the momentum of nonviolent direct action lost foothold in this country. King was a true prophet. He spoke directly to our nation's deepest spirituality and sin. And he knew that structures needed to be rearranged and shifted and changed. And he also knew those structures would only shake if he spoke directly at the underlying myth, the underlying values and metaphysics upon which they're built. And the way he would say it is, I'm trying to save the soul of America. Dr. King, after being arrested in Birmingham, wrote a letter. Some of you are familiar with it. I, I recommend all of you read it to some church leaders uh, and some Jewish leaders that had been criticizing his use of nonviolent direct action. I'm going to read you just a section of that letter that overlaps with our passage today. And I'm going to try to resist channeling his voice, which I keep wanting to do because I love it, but I can't. 
Of course, there's nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was seen sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar because a higher moral law was involved. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions in the excruciating pain of the chopping block before submitting to certain unjust laws in the Roman Empire. To a decree... To a degree, academic freedom is a reality because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. We can never forget that everything that Hitler did in Germany was legal, and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. And it was illegal to aid or comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany, but I am sure that if I lived in Germany during that time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers even though it was illegal. If I lived in a communist country today where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I believe I would openly advocate disobeying those laws. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years I've grown gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached a regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in a stride toward freedom is not the white citizens council or the Ku Klux Klan, but the white moderate who is more devoted, and listen to this because it's familiar for Babylon, who is more devoted to order than justice, who prefers negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with your goal that you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom and who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is way more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And in your statement, you asserted that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitated violence. Can that be said logically? That's like saying, that's like condemning a man that got robbed because the money in his pocket precipitated the robbery. It's like Condemning Socrates because his unswerving commitment to truth and his philosophical delvings precipitated the misguided popular mind to make him drink poison. Hemlock. Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God consciousness and his never-ceasing devotion to his will precipitated the evil act of the crucifixion? We must come to see, as the federal courts have constantly affirmed, That it is immoral to urge an individual to withdraw his efforts to gain his basic constitutional rights because because his quest precipitates violence. He mentions this story, the story we're reading today, alongside some other situations of the faithful defying the dominant principalities and powers. Christians in Rome refusing to burn incense on the altar. In 399 BC, Socrates goes on trial and is found guilty for corrupting the minds of the youth, and for impiety, for for not believing in the gods of the state. The Hungarian freedom fighters that stood up and opposed the Soviets, the subversives who aided the Jews in Nazi Germany. And as I reflect on today's passage alongside the Christians in Rome and Socrates in Athens, I am intrigued by what I, I can only call the righteous role of atheism. The word, by the way, atheist, was coined by the Romans to refer to the Christians. 
And, and the reason was because the Christians rejected the gods of Rome. They denied their legitimacy and ultimately their existence. And Socrates at least is partly condemned for denying the legitimacy and the ultimacy of the gods of Athens. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the flame for refusing the commands of Marduk's representative, King Nebuchadnezzar. And they say to him, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship image of gold that you have set up. And their atheism is a kind of anarchy. Now, we, we, we have a, a way we interpret that word and we think chaos and craziness and, and, and understandably for some of the ways it's used. But archai, kai exousia, archai, anarchai, it's, it's not ruler, no ruler, right? Remember, the Jews like, had no king, the Hebrews, no king, and they asked for that. But originally, by design, there was no ruler. There was one king. And their anarchy is atheism. These go hand in hand because to say no to the king is to refuse to worship his idol. The spiritual and the political, they're the same here. This is on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I know you guys recently studied 1 Peter and have been discussing what it looks like to be the elect in exile. And I think it looks like anarchism and it looks like atheism in the place of exile. Moses was an atheist that denied the gods of Egypt, including the divinity of Pharaoh. He broke their laws. He denied their gods. He's an anarchist. He's an atheist. And in Acts, the apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin to question by the high priest. He says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teachings and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood? And Peter and the apostles reply, we must obey God rather than human beings. And then they're taken out and flogged, which is typically what happens when we're faithful to God. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely because of me. Why would the poor in spirit, the meek and the peacemaker be persecuted? Well, in a world where God is Marduk and the spirit is violent, peacemakers are subversive anarchists. They are atheists that deny the spiritual legitimacy to that violent use of power. And it's an indictment of worldly rule and its rulers. And this is why Christians were persecuted in Rome. They're not bothered by your meekness or your humility. Rome was upset because of Christian atheism, Christian anarchism. In a, in a Roman worldview, Caesar was considered the son of God, and the imperial accomplishments are the gospel of Rome, the glad tidings of Rome. And the Christians recognize another son of God, a king even, and, and have another, a different gospel. And when the, when the Roman archons, that's that word, the magistrates, ordered Christians to worship the imperial spirit, they refused. And what they said they would do is instead we'll kneel and offer prayers on behalf of the emperor to God. That worked for some. Others were fed to lions, were gutted, were burned. But this seemingly innocuous act 
was far more revolutionary than any rebellion could have ever been. Because rebellion simply acknowledges the absolute power of the emperor and it attempts to take it. Prayer denies that ultimacy altogether. You know, Socrates told one of his friends, I, I have like a voice in my head. It's like a spirit. Uh, the word is daemon, but it's not what you think of demon, right? But I have a voice, a spirit. And it, it doesn't tell me what to do, but it, it tells me what not to do. So like I'm talking and it goes, hey, shut up. Don't say that. And so I, I obey it. And there's an opportunity to leave Athens and get out of jail. and says, yeah, don't. And so I don't. And he remains loyal to that. And it reminds me of Viktor Frankl, uh, whose thesis uh, paper, which became a book under the title The Unconscious God. So he's an Austrian um, neuro neurologist and psychiatrist that survived the Holocaust. He was in four, he would say, I'm, I'm the product of two schools and four camps, four concentration camps he survived. And he said that the deep in our being, we are transcendent. We have a deep will to meaning. This is why his most popular book is Man's Search for Meaning, which is his memoirs from that time. But when conscience calls to, uh, uh, I'm sorry, let me finish that thought. So he, he's like, we know intuitively something is wrong before we can rationally flesh it out. That the conscience, the intuitive conscience is pre-rational. It's like a voice that says, don't. No. And, and we have to listen. And when the call of conscience says no, like Socrates, and, and when like Socrates, we decide to submit ourselves to that still small voice, we must step outside of the values and ideologies that legitimize how meaning is construed in the world around us, which is mainly often the use of power. And we may at times appear to be lawless advocates of anarchy, like Dr. King was, but that's what lies at the roots of Christian persecution. So here's the real challenge and why I wanted to dig into the metaphysics and the cosmology of the Babylonians. One, I wanted to bring context to this story to help us see what's actually happening here. But I also wanted us to hear these stories and the values and ethos that they bring into the spirituality, the ideology behind the systems, behind the the concrete realities of the Babylonians because I believe that much of that same spirituality is within us today. And we cannot look at the men in this story and put ourselves in their shoes, in the shoes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Th these men that say, they have no knowledge, like you pointed out, of what's going to happen. And they're like, even if we don't survive, we won't do this. We can't put ourselves in their shoes if we have not... If, it's, it's arrogant. It's audacious. And I think it's probably important for us to see how we're like Nebuchadnezzar. How we rely on power, how we rely on the threat of violence. How we can't see anything but my dad will beat up your dad. And, and notice he interprets everything. So, so, so then he's like, whoa, Yahweh seems to be powerful. I should probably incorporate him because I, I can't go to war and I need to re can keep my foothold in power. And then what does he do? I get a, such a kick out of this. He's like, all right, anyone who talks crap about their God is going to get killed. Because everything is violence. You understand that? It makes perfect sense. It's all that there is. This is the interpretive lens.
Where, and he, he makes accommodations to not lose his foothold of power. And I want to know where are you making accommodations to God rather than submitting to his ways? And are we able to see anything outside of the lens of power and violence? Let me call the worship team back up. Because I want us to be able to put ourselves in the shoes of Shadrach or the Christians that are martyred in the Roman Empire or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but the problem is, we have been repressing and denying what is ugliest inside of us. We have not integrated our aggression in such a way as to bring it under our control, under the lordship of Jesus and his ways. And we fail to train ourselves in the day-to-day, -day, and then we think we're going to be ready when that fire is heated sevenfold. Guys, that is audacity and arrogance. We can't just hope that we're going to have what it takes. We have to build that into ourselves. And I want to challenge each of you to reflect on your own behavior and have the courage to seriously ask yourself how you are functioning out of a myth of redemptive violence. When you're, where are you tempted to pick up the sword rather than to lay down your life? My guess is everywhere because it is not natural for people that have been so shaped by Athens, so shaped by Rome, so shaped by Babylon. It's the air we breathe. We've been immersed in systems of domination, and we're often possessed by the spirit of those things. And I, and I, and I do think it needs to be said, because there's critique embedded in this, I think it needs to be said alongside that critique that our nation and our culture, they're tremendously valuable. We're, we're sitting in here in relative peace, we have food to eat, clothes to wear. We have so much to be grateful for. And we can't lose sight of that either. We're indebted to these systems and structures. And yet, those things have yet to lay down their crowns before the throne of God. They have yet to surrender their power to his lordship, to his leadership. And in many ways, accommodations have been made like they were in the story so footholds of power can be retained. Guys, it's difficult to discern the path of faithfulness when we're in exile. But we participate as we can. We give as we can. We contribute as we can. We, even Shadrach, they worked. They, they were overseeing the affairs in Babylon until the moment came when the Spirit said no. Right? They weren't just out of the whole thing. But they were listening for the call of conscience, the call of God. And guys, when you hear, when you listen for that call and you hear it and it tells you to stop or stand up or speak up, you would do well to train yourself to listen. Because those muscles get stronger over time. Your capacity to hear it gets stronger over time. But the inverse is true too. Because every time you give in to temptation, to lie, to cheat, to steal, to power up, to compromise your standards, you're more likely to do it the next time. And you're becoming. So train yourself to be discerning, to be listening, to be attentive. Train yourself to be faithful. Train yourself in the little day-to-day. -day. Pay attention. Why am I doing it this way? Why am I carrying this stick? So I want to close this morning by asking you to pray a prayer with me. 
Now, this is a call and response prayer, but I made it at home on PowerPoint, so it's going to be too small because I didn't know what this would look like. Um, but it's very easy, so you'll catch on. Some of them in the front are going to be able to see it, and you'll catch on because a lot of it's repetitive. But I want to ask you to pray this prayer with me. Now, this is a call and response prayer, and it was written by James Loney. Now, James was a Canadian peace activist who served for years as a Christian, on Christian peacemaker teams in Iraq. He was kidnapped in Baghdad. And by the way, put that map back up. Go back one. Oh, yeah. You see where Baghdad is? Right next to Babylon. I thought this was fascinating. He was in exile in Babylon. He was taken in, kidnapped in Baghdad. He was held captive for almost half a year. There were four of them. One of them was murdered. Three of them were rescued. And just months after his release, he, along with the other two survivors from the Christian Peacemaker team, made a public proclamation of forgiveness. Here is what they said. We unconditionally forgive our captors for abducting and holding us. We have no desire to punish them. And should those who have been charged with holding us hostage be brought to trial and convicted, we ask that they be granted every possible leniency. We categorically lay aside any right we may have over them. And then not long after his release, they're brought to trial and he refuses to testify. And he makes a statement, I told them that I will not testify. I cannot participate in a judicial process where the prospects of a fair trial are negligible. And, and more importantly, where the death penalty is a possibility. This man, to me, clearly reflects the posture that I read in the no made by today's passage. And Loney founded in Toronto, he founded a Catholic worker hospitality house. And so for those that aren't familiar with the Catholic worker, they're heroes of mine. Um, but they've explicitly embraced the posture and moniker, moniker, whatever that word is, of Christian anarchist. Which is to say, Jesus is Lord, Caesar's not. That's it. And here's the prayer that he penned for his community. And I want to ask you to stand up and, and, and pray this with me in closing. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Free us from the bondage of sin and death. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Grant us peace. For the victims of war, have mercy. For women, men, and children, have mercy. For the maimed and crippled, have mercy. For the abandoned and the homeless, have mercy. For the imprisoned and the tortured, have mercy. For the widowed and orphaned, have mercy. For the bleeding and dying, have mercy. For the weary and the desperate, have mercy. For the lost and the forsaken, oh God, have mercy on us sinners, for we know not what we do. For our scorched and blackened earth, forgive us. For the scandal of billions wasted in war, forgive us. For our arms makers and our arms dealers, forgive us. For our Caesars and Herods, forgive us. For the violence that is rooted in our hearts, forgive us. For the times we turn others into enemies, forgive us. Deliver us, O oh God, and guide our feet into the way of peace. From the arrogance of power, 
deliver us. From the myth of redemptive violence, deliver us. From the tyranny of greed, deliver us. From the ugliness of racism, deliver us. From the cancer of hatred, deliver us. From the idolatry of nationalism, deliver us. From the paralysis of cynicism, deliver us. From the apathy, violence and apathy, deliver us. From the ghettos of poverty, deliver us. From the ghettos of wealth, deliver us. From a lack of imagination, deliver us. Deliver us, O oh God. Guide our feet into the way of peace. Now just pause and reflect on these words for just a minute. Mainly because I have to pull something up. I, I didn't make the rest of the slides, but it will be easy to catch on. We will not conform to the patterns of this world. Let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Help. With the help of God's grace, let us resist evil wherever we find it. And, and the response here is we will not comply. With the waging of war, we will not comply. With the legalization of murder, we will not comply. With the slaughter of innocents, we will not comply. With laws that betray human life, we will not comply. With the destruction of community, we will not comply. With the pointing finger and malicious talk, we will not comply. With the idea that happiness must be purchased, we will not comply. With the ravaging of the earth, we will not comply. With the principalities and powers that oppress, we will not comply. With the raping of women, we will not comply. With the governments that kill, we will not comply. With the theology of empire, we will not comply. With the business of militarism, we will not comply. With the hoarding of riches, we will not comply. With the dissemination of fear, we will not comply. With the, with the, to the kingdom of God, we pledge our allegiance. This is the response, we pledge our allegiance. To the kingdom of God, we pledge our allegiance. To a peace that is not like Rome's, we pledge our allegiance. To the gospel of enemy love, we pledge our allegiance. To the kingdom of the poor and the broken, we pledge our allegiance. To a king that loves his enemies so much he died for them, we pledge our allegiance. To the least of these with whom Christ dwells, we pledge our allegiance. To the transnational church that transcends the artificial borders of nations, we pledge our allegiance. To the refugee of Nazareth, we pledge our allegiance. To the homeless rabbi who had no place to lay his head, we pledge our allegiance. To the cross, rather than the sword, we pledge our allegiance. To the banner of love above any flag, we pledge our allegiance. To the one who rides a donkey rather than a war horse, we pledge our allegiance. To the revolution that sets both the oppressed and the oppressors free, we pledge our allegiance. To the way that leads to life, we pledge our allegiance to the slaughtered lamb. We pledge our allegiance. And together, we proclaim his praises from the margins of the empire to the centers of wealth and power. Long live the slaughtered lamb. Amen.